Okay, anyway, here we go. I'll get it. Alright, cold porter room. <laughs> Not helpful. And now, coming to you live from the Waldorf Room, high atop the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Gary K. Wolf and Jonathan Strahan on the Coot Street Podcast! It's wonderful that I can uh, watch you on that number, because do you think you really get that sort of echoey fade away by moving the microphone away from you as you say, yes. I don't know. I'm not I a radio so. professional, Gary. I'm just mucking about. <laughs> I think we should do. Um, I think we should do an echo chamber. We should do what? Sorry. An echo chamber. I think we need an echo chamber for the podcast. Oh, special effects. And you, you know that John Anilio was willing to do a, uh, a theme for us as well, Gary. And we never took him up That's on right. it. Right. And we never took him up on it. We could ask. Uh, had well, cool sixties uh, radio sci-fi effects. We have little theremin sound things. You know, if like you say something, you should go like, or something. I wonder if you can buy a theremin these days. Oh, I'm sure you can. In fact, I've even seen someone using a theremin live on stage in the last handful well, of years. Well, I've seen people using theremins live on stage, yeah. I think that uh, some uh, rock groups even, even use mm-hmm. them occasionally. Um, yes. The ultimate prog rock instrument. Underway, yes. I have to say, listeners, just so that you're aware, Gary and I now, in parallel to enjoying the, the, the stunning surround sound joys of Skype actually also FaceTime each other. So we're making silly gestures at each other during the podcast that you can't see. Mm. Uh, and that possibly, I, sh- I should r- remind us both, undercut some of the, what we're saying if we're not careful. Right, so we can wave hysterically at one another saying, don't ask me that. That's it. Well, I- I've got to say, this is episode, I think, 130, Gary? It is. It's oh, episode 130. Uh, and it's going to go live in the second week, the first week of January. And it looks like our listener base has just expanded to a thousand regular listeners or so. And that's assuming that Podbean's statistics aren't completely off off base. Uh, so hello, Cood Street Thousand. And thank you very much for your your ears. Um, your ears. Yes. yes. Thank you for listening. And please, please, please do. Uh, consider yourself part of the Cood Street community and go to uh, one of the two Cood Street locations to comment. If we ever say anything interesting, we probably won't, but if we do, yeah. So, Gary, what's happening in the wonderful world of Wolfian science fiction this week? Oh, this week I've been reading... I'm, I'm, I'm reading stuff. I, I, oh, something that you've been reading, too, and I've not finished it. So I don't know if we can talk definitively about it. It's the, it's the new Bruce Sterling novel, Strange, which is strange. Is what, sorry? Bruce Sterling. Um, okay, novel, just so you know, I, I haven't, I'm not reading it. No, I downloaded it. And just so that listeners oh. are aware, in the last week of December, 40th Street Press, I think it is, released an ebook only edition of Bruce Sterling's new novel, Love is Strange, A Paranormal Romance, which uh, I actually used a, a chapter of that in one of my year's best because he publishes a standalone story called Onset of a Paranormal Romance. You did, and it's 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 not it's almost the first chapter of the novel, which is a par- well, the paranormal part I'm not sure about, but it's a romance novel. Mm-hmm. It uses the language of romance novels. It's set in Capri. It's got a romantic setting, um, and it doesn't read like anything by Bruce Sterling I've ever read before at all. And uh, the the reason I I can't say I can say no more because I'm about halfway through it, and things could change radically. But the language and style clearly alludes to romance novel writing, which I think is fascinating. And and so far, are you enjoying the book? I'm enjoying it in in a bizarre way. I don't know if I would have gotten as far into it as I have and been as hypnotized by it as I have if I didn't know it was a Bruce Sterling novel. Well, I guess that's it. Are you waiting for something Sterling-esque to happen? Yes, exactly. I am. I'm waiting for... For the penny to drop. Uh, for the penny to drop, and it takes place at a futurological congress, sort of at uh, in Capri, and there's there's clearly emerging a kind of tension between uh, an accountant's statistical version of the future and, and a kind of uh, mystical Italian uh, romantic mystery woman's um, apparently 
um, what did they used to call it? The portent, the sixth sense, the, mm -hmm. um, the psychic vision of the future. That seems to be emerging as, as an interesting uh, theme, and it could turn out to be a very interesting novel for that reason, because yep. there is a tension in popular fiction between um, the future as revealed yep. to people with psychic powers and the future as extra extrapolated by um, by futurists, and I think if somebody were to do the stu were to do a study, somebody probably has done a study. Uh, I would suspect that even though all the uh, psychic futurists are by and large most of the time wrong, so are most of the statistical futurists. Yeah. So he might be making a point there about the ways we think about the future. He might. And That's entirely possible. I mean, uh, Sterling's never been um, reluctant to make a point. No, and Sterling is uh, one of the handful of remaining science fiction writers who make a, a, a fairly decent side living as a professional futurist. I think I would actually correct you, Gary. My, my suspicion is that he's one of the few that actually makes his living as a professional futurist and writes as a science fiction writer on the side. You're probably right. Uh, there, there, there's an academic aspect to what he does, but... But the back in the it seems to be back in the forties and fifties when before there were professional futurists, yeah. you would occasionally get Life magazine or Look magazine calling up Asimov or Heinlein, and having them you know project a rational future, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and 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 pretty much when they did that they got it wrong they were way over optimistic, um, and then in the seventies probably in the seventies and eighties, there was this group of professional futurists um, who belonged to the. Uh, <coughs> future Studies Association, or whatever it was called. They subscribed to the Futurists. There was, uh, oh, I'm trying to think. Uh, I'm trying to think of the names of some of them. But, you know, this really became a profession after these books, like. Um, yeah. Uh, oh, who am I thinking of? The guy who made the big bestseller in the 70s of. Uh, it's a future Shock, Alvin Toffler. Oh, yeah, Alvin Toffler, yeah, yeah. And, and, and so then you had a kind of profession in business and consulting and. Uh, statistics that uh, that had to do with future projections, and that that's still there. But the idea of looking for new ideas in the future and looking for what trends are currently unexpected but likely to be large—that's the sort of thing that Sterling does well. Yeah, and it's not a lot of not a lot of other science fiction writers seem to do that. No, not a lot do. Um, which is interesting. What I, what I'm interested in actually is that this is the book that Sterling has chosen to. Um, to, to put out as his new novel. I mean, because he's he's not a prolific novelist. You know, if you consider no. that he's been writing since the late 1970s, I think Involution Ocean came out in about 77 or so. And, and since then, there's been, what, two, four, six, eight, ten novels across 30-plus years. You know, that's that's and, not, not a lot. In fact, 35 years. So this is right. this is the 11th novel in 35 years, and his first since the, the Caryatids, which, I, in fact, I don't think I even read the Caryatids. So you did. Um, I didn't think it was one of his stronger novels. I mean, I I was very impressed with Islands in the Net. I remember liking Zeitgeist, which is Bruce Sterling's... The closest thing Bruce Sterling did to writing a Bill Gibson novel was probably yeah. Zeitgeist, which is um, set in the future, which is actually two years in the past. Yeah. Um, but uh, this, so, so you're right. He doesn't write a lot. His novels, a new, a new Bruce Sterling novel... It really ought to be more of an event than it is. Yeah, it should be. I mean, this has come out very quietly. And if you consider that, to my mind, he's written two, well, for two or, two or three of the great science fiction novels of the 20th century, mm -hmm. and a handful of the best short fiction, short, you know, short science fiction of the 20th century, you would think it would be more of an event. Uh, the impression I got from private correspondence with Bruce is that it's just a real hassle being a uh, science fiction novelist in 2012. And so he decided to just sneak this out because he'd written it and it was easy to do. But could, could very well be. I mean, one of the things, the obvious comparison, I suppose, uh, is, is Gibson. And Gibson, frankly, doesn't face the problem of being a science fiction yeah. novelist in the 21st century because he's a brand name. He's, he's, yeah. I think people realized a long time, four, three or four or five novels ago, that yeah. a new Gibson novel is not regarded by the mainstream press as, as a science fiction novel at all. No. No, no, it's not, which is really kind of curious because um, it's, it, it, I really rate Gibbs, uh, Sterling incredibly highly as a science fiction writer. And uh, uh, I mean, the future stuff doesn't particularly interest me. 
But mm. I think Schismetrics is a spectacular book. I think Islands in the Net is a brilliant book. And I think Holy I Fire is his best book. novel. Yeah, I think it is. And I think that he's shown that he still has those chops with the b- body of short fiction that he's been writing over the last f- four or five years. Mm-hmm. You know, there's been one or you know a handful of good I mean, Goddess of Mercy, which came out this year, Peak of Eternal Light, which came out this year. Um, even this shorter pieces like the Exterminators Want Ad and a few others, they've been really good stories, oh, yeah. really well thought out, really clever, uh, really engaged. I mean, I, I, if anything, I, I do wonder if he's been more um, intrigued by living the life of a science fiction, uh, uh, living a science fiction life than uh, writing than uh, being worried about science fiction itself. Well, we should mention that he's had a couple of nonfiction books uh, during the same period, which have. Uh, I suspect, without having any knowledge whatsoever, have sold as well as as, as, as his novels would have. And I'm sure. he, he does he does have this futurist reputation, and it's something I don't blame him for um, taking advantage of. But I think, from what from what you're telling me, what I've heard from um, from the fairly sparse amount of short fiction he's put out as well, that I suspect he finds writing fiction to be problematical in terms of return on investment. Uh, that, well, I don't know. I mean, like I say, don't underestimate the volume of short fiction he's writing. Uh, as the novels have tapered off, he's written more and more short fiction. Mm. You know, I mean, he's probably look, taking a quick glance at a bibliography because I don't pretend to know this stuff off the top of my head. He's written more short fiction between 2001 and 2012 than he did between 1976 and 2000. Okay, that's impressive. And in fact, he's written a lot of that between about 2004 and the present. So he's, he's hammering out about four stories a year at the moment, quite often, four or five stories a year, as well as his other work. So it's the novel work he's not been doing. And I guess, you know, it's, it's sort of a natural thing for someone like, like, like us, who's perhaps really did love a major book like Holy Fire, uh, to mourn that, because you'd like to think, well, you know, you, you'd have had more than, what, four, four novels since 2000, including the new one. So there have been four in the We get about one every three years or so. So I, I, would, I would hope we would see more, but you know, you never know. Well, one of the things that some of the stories you write, I mean, I, I, I tend to think this is where, this is where a reader like myself uh, depends on an anthologist like yourself. I tend to see the Bruce Dillon stories that show up in your best anthologies. Mm-hmm. Bicycle Airman was in, was in all of them practically. It seems to me was in three or four probably. Um, I'm just going to interject something. We're, we're getting a slow connection over Skype, so I'm just going to turn off FaceTime for a minute to save bandwidth. Okay, we'll see if that helps. Hopefully. Okay, yeah, and, and continue, yeah. I was going to say the bicycle repairmen seemed to be a very widely respected. Uh, the what was the, the one with the Russian title? Tel, uh, tel- Hollywood Kremlin? No, no, no. Which actually isn't the Russian name at all, I don't think. Sorry, sorry. It has to do with a. It's a desert. Oh, okay. It's the name of a desert uh, in the Himalayas or somewhere like that, I think you'll find. Oh, it's, uh, oh, yeah, it's the, like the, the Taklamakan, yeah. Taklamakan Desert's in China, I guess. You're right. So, yeah. Northwest China. But you're right. So, yes. He's been consistently writing first-rate fiction, and uh, what strikes me as interesting about uh, the, the, the novel is is what the subtitle is going to mean. Yeah. Um, because, I mean, for, for most of us, uh, who have been reading Bruce Sterling for decades now, paranormal romance is the last thing you would ever expect to see from him. Yes, very much. Um, but obviously he's looking to put some, some kind of a, a spin on it, to change it around, that kind of a thing. I think so. Um, so I, I guess what we need to do is we need to um, return to this, uh, you know, uh, yeah, return to, to, to return to the novel when you've actually we've actually finished reading it. Yes, that's absolutely true. Uh, meanwhile, I think it's fascinating enough to recommend that everybody take a look at. Now, at the moment, as far as I can tell you, I mean, I did ask Bruce directly uh, after the book came out, and, and he he alluded to there may be a print edition at some point, uh, though there's no information available on that. So. Um, I guess at the moment all we can do is say, you know, go to your favorite ebook retailer and, and and try it out. Yeah, and uh, it's 
one of those things that, that um, is, I think, at least temporarily available for free for Kindle Prime subscribers. I'm not sure. Okay. Well, but there's a sample downloadable for anybody. Okay. Uh, so, anyway, that's what I've been reading. I've been looking at uh, uh, other things. I've been looking at the uh, local short fiction list. But one of the things, we had a, we had an inquiry from one of our listeners, which we probably should address. Well, we did. Our friend James Bradley, uh, late of this podcast himself, a guest, uh, wrote into us asking, well, it's interesting, he, he, I'm cheating, when I, when I sent this to you, I'm cheating. He, he asked me if there was a, a previous episode of the Cood Street podcast we could re- we could direct him to, to listen to um, suggestions about recommendations of what's good in contemporary fantasy. And he makes a specific, what he says is basically... His partner's trying to get on top of what's good rather than what's popular in contemporary fantasy. I've offered some suggestions, but I'm curious what uh, what, what we'd pick. And you know, if we were to name half a dozen novels that represent the best of contemporary fantasy, what would they be? And he, he uh-huh. names a few names. Now, I felt that it was would be interesting to, to cheat and to throw ourselves in here and discuss it here. It's a fascinating question because and I, 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 it's, it's fascinating to guess what, what James might have come up with in his list. When somebody asks me what's a good contemporary fantasy or what's the best contemporary fantasy, uh, one of the first things I want to know is what do you like to read because um, compared to what is, is, is the first question. Well, see, I think that, that that's a reasonable assumption, but it, I think it misses the intent of this question because... Hmm. Uh, this question isn't about what do you think I will like. It's about I'm attempting to survey the field. You know, I'm trying to understand the, science, the, the, the contemporary fantasy field and what constitutes excellence in contemporary fantasy. So to turn back mm-hmm. and say, well, if you like this, then that, you're, yes, you're going to please that reader, which is a good thing, but it isn't going to necessarily give you that kind of understanding that you're hoping for. But at the same time, when you give an answer based on your own reading, you're you're giving that answer. You're giving an answer saying, I, one of the writers who I think would surprise nobody, I would put on the list is Graham Joyce. Sure. And one of, one of the things that I would say as a caveat to that is I like Graham Joyce because I like the kinds of things Graham Joyce writes. Okay. Um, let, let, let's, I'm, I'm going to sort of play a game with this, and I'm, I'm going to hope you'll, you'll bear with me. What are we going to call contemporary fantasy for a start? What's our cutoff in in discussing contemporary fantasy? Well, we could do, I suppose, what uh, more or less what the locus pulled in, and simply say since the beginning of the century, the beginning of the millennium. How about okay. the last twelve years? Okay. And if we do that, let's see. I'm just while while we're talking, I'm actually running around opening windows on my computer because hey, that's what I do. Uh, of course. I just want to see if I can pull up the Locus all-time poll that they just did, because didn't they do a, um, a, a, a list of fantasy novels there? That would certainly should give us a benchmark 20, for, uh, for, for, for 21st century... All I'm getting is a short fiction list. Where's the, 20, the, the novels? 20th century f- fantasy novel? Where's 21st? Okay. Why don't we just... Let, let's not muck around and, and talk about these as the best. But these are the books that the, the, the 116 people who voted described as the all-time most popular, so I guess this is what we're talking about, versus popular, um, fantasy novels. Neil Gaiman's American Gods, Susanna Clarke's Jonathan Strange and Mr. Novel, Norrell, Patrick Rothfuss's The Name of the Wind, China Mieville's The Scar, J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, George Martin's A Feast for Crows, Lois Bujold's The Christopher Chalian, China Mieville's The City in the City, Just Before It's the Air Affair, and Neil Gaiman's Caroline, uh, Caroline. That's the top ten. A couple below that, there's some Pratchett and some Gene Wolfe and some other stuff. But that, that, that's the, the popular top ten. Right. Now, if we restrict ourselves to the same time period, 2000, 2010, I mean, we can go back a little bit before. Because whenever I think about this, there's certain books that I think of with great affection, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, for example, Mythigo Wood by Robert Holdstock is one of the great works of modern contemporary fantasy. Yes, I agree. Now, it's interesting it's now 36 or 38 years old. I think. Mm. It's nearly 30 years old. So uh, I don't know whether that still counts as contemporary in that breakdown. Um, I don't know either, and I don't know whether things like Peter Beagle's The Last Unicorn would count as, uh, as contemporary if you go back to 1968, I think, which is when that came out. Um, but uh, I guess my I guess the way my mind goes yeah. is in this sort of academic scholarly way that when you when you look at novels that appear to be disparate like Mythago Wood 
uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, and the last three uh, adult Graham Joyce novels. There's a tradition there, which I would argue is certainly one of the most important traditions in modern fantasy, that all those novels in some form or another trace part of their DNA back to Arthur Mack. Yeah. Um, and in fact, I would add, and, and the other question that comes in here is, where do you define fantasy? Um, I would add things like um, uh, M. John Harrison's Things That Never Happened. Um, which is a which collection. Is a fantasy at all, maybe too literary for some, yeah. but uh, a brilliant novel. Yeah. So there, there's, a, there's a kind of cluster of folkloristic, uh, genius loci, mystical places that, that, that all de detail the survival of magic in the modern world mm -hmm. in some ways. That's one thing all these things have in common. And that's the kind of fiction I'm a sucker for. I really like it. You like Machinesque um, fiction? I like Machinesque fiction. Okay. I think you can trace Machin all the way down to China Mieville, to John Harrison, to Elizabeth Han, to, um, to Susanna Clark. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so I think that's, that's a kind of fantasy which I'm uh, very much um, partial to. Now, when you, say, when you look at somebody taking that tradition and twisting it in a new, interesting way, such as Caitlin Kiernan did uh, in The Drowning Girl, yep. which I think is certainly one of the most important fantasy novels of the last five or six years, yep. that, that's even more exciting because that's an American novel with a kind of punk American sensibility that still draws on that tradition. Yep. Um, so it's a very literary kind of tradition. But but then see, but he, here's one of those things about this contemporary fantasy question. It is mm -hmm. The Kiernan book is fantastic, and, and we're both on record as loving it. Does mm -hmm. it interrogate fantasy? Is that a useful question? Is this part of what we're doing in attempting to describe a great contemporary fantasy novel? I think it completely interrogates fantasy. Brilliant. It, it interrogates the... Well, one of the things that a lot of these books do, if you look at the narrative structures of them, the way they're narrated, who the narrators are, what their position is in relation to the characters. Uh, the subtitle of uh, Drowning Girl is a memoir. Yes. Right there, that subtitle interrogates the nature of fantasy. Yeah. Okay. Um, so so, so that, that's one kind of... But, but when you look at that sort of thing, and, and the whole stock was certainly uh, part of this tradition as well, we're still looking away from the kind of large-scale epic fantasy that well, many people think of when they think of Descendants of Lord of the Rings. I have to say that if I were to go through my, let's say, top ten contemporary fantasy novels of the last <laughs> chunk of years, I don't think any of them would be, by default, epic fantasy novels, which may put me in that category of critics that were being complained about in the New York Review of Science Fiction by Stephen Erickson, uh, about not, you know, not looking closely at epic fantasy and thinking about it. And I have great affection and respect uh, for a book like, say, Game of Thrones. Mm -hmm. but, but when I'm asked for contemporary fantasy, for some reason, that's not something that comes to mind. You know, uh, oh. to, to me, I'm, I'm going to think about contemporary fantasy writers. Uh, Kiernan, Blaylock, um, Joyce, um, uh, well, those sorts well. of people. Sorry? Powers, I would say Tim Powers. And, uh, yes, Tim Powers, very much. I mean, um, see, uh, see, for me, okay, uh, great contemporary fantasy novels, Last Call by Tim Powers, mm -hmm. which I would rate as his best novel. I'd have to think about that, but it's a very good novel. Uh, I mean, there are others that I love, and there's others that are actually more fun. I mean, the first couple of novels are The, um, oh, the Drowning of the Dark. Um, the Drowning of the Dark. I actually... I actually told Tim at one point that that was more fun than any of his other novels, and this was only a couple of years ago, and yeah. he agreed. Yep. Uh, it's a very early novel, but uh, certainly you know things like the escapes and yeah. the stress of her regard and so forth are, are more ambitious. But and, yeah, and, they're, I, they're, they're, and I know the new novel is is terrific, but mm -hmm. that would be me if you said to me, "Last Call." That's the one that knocked me out. Anybody who's going to make Bugsy Siegel into the Fisher King. Gets my point. Gets gets marks right. for me. And 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 Tim, although some people said he can write slightly purplish, which I don't entirely buy. You know, um, I'll go for it. Now, actually, it's interesting when I say that I back away from epic fantasy. It's interesting that I say that because the one epic fantasist that I would include in this sort of would be Guy K. Um, and depending on how far back you go, I would probably include Tagana, which I think is a I, brilliant yeah. book. I, th I think you're right. I, I don't think that Guy K is... 
an epic fantasist in the in the large scale tradition. So he belongs to another tradition, which is more or less historical fantasy. It goes back to include people like John M. Ford, for example, um, and possibly even Ursula Le Guin with Lavinia, which I think yep. was one of the great fantasy novels. But when people think of epic fantasy, I don't think they're thinking of Goethe. I think they're thinking of people who are directly in the Tolkien tradition. Sure. You know, Steve Donaldson's, the David Eddings, the um, Terry uh, Brooks's, and so forth and so on. Uh, and if you're confining yourself to that area, the, and, and I admit I have not read a lot of that recently, and Steve Erickson is absolutely right if he wants to accuse me of not knowing uh, his work. I have not read uh, the last seven or eight novels. Mm -hmm. uh, but on the other hand, get back to your earlier question about interrogating what fantasy does, it seems to me that Gene Wolfe's The Wizard Knight is very much an interrogation of what that kind of fantasy purports to do. Okay. And I found that a very interesting... Uh, now, really do, would you include in the best of contemporary fantasy has to offer um, YA fantasy, which feels at times quite different, though it's definitely part of the field, there's definitely fantastic fantasy. Because, I mean, then to me, you're going to face a book like, say, The Northern Lights by um, uh, Philip Pullman. You know, the first of the uh, Golden Compass books, or the Golden Compass, the first of the Northern Lights books, actually. Yeah, uh, I don't think it's distinction anymore. And I think that that, actually, that particular book is his best book, and the best in that set, and is spectacular, but would you put it down in your list of the best contemporary fantasy novels? I think I would. Um, part, of, part of what we're asking here is, what are we... What are we identifying as original novels that use the materials of fantasy, as opposed to what are the best performances of familiar fantasy yeah. motifs? Yeah. Um, and uh, one of the things about Game of Thrones is that it's it's extremely well done, and it's extremely revisionist in terms of the way uh, fantasy narratives usually unfold. In the sense of you know you, the heroes, there there are no heroes to speak. Mm -hmm. of. Um, and it's it's a very uh, impressive series. Again, I only read the first couple of volumes, based on what we receive as a traditional fantasy uh, narrative. Yeah. In other words, it's, a, it's kind of a critique of uh, the Tolkien, Tolkien tradition. Yeah. And I think it's a very good critique, but it's it's within that bubble of heroic fantasy. Um, There's a couple of books that actually came out the same year as The Wizard Knight that I would probably pop onto the same list. Uh, I know that it's from the Locus most popular list, but I, th I really don't think we can overlook Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. I think that's, I that, that's, that's one instance where I really think that the popular vote really gets it right. Um, it's a, the thing about Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell is it's stylistically a little bit challenging. I mean, it's yep. written, it's, 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 it's a Dickensian plot written in a Jane Austen style. Um, with elaborate footnotes and elaborate backstory. She'd been working on it for a long time. It's it's really like nothing else in contemporary fantasy. There have been other Victorian ghost stories, but nothing that seems to have worked out uh, the world in as much detail as that does. That's that's a good example of the kind of thing I'm talking about that seems to be something new. It, mm -hmm. it, it doesn't seem to be a redaction of Tolkien. It yeah. doesn't seem to be a redaction of, of James Grant's Cable or or, 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 or or George MacDonald or whatever, uh, and and extremely well done. Those yeah. books are very very rare. If you look at um, going back to let's say um, one of the classic works of the teens and twenties would have been the um, the Edison novels, you know, yeah. or more and so forth and so on. Um, terrifically original, very difficult to read these days. Yeah. But point of view of originality. It seems to me that that creates a world that you haven't quite seen before. I think Jonathan yeah. Strange and Norrell does that. Okay. The other book from the same year that I would consider mentioning is actually Sean Stewart's Perfect Circle. He wrote three contemporary what? fantasies, one after the other, uh, Galveston, Mockingbird, and Perfect Circle, which were spectacular books. And, and was Perfect Circle his last novel? It's his most – well, it, well, barring some of the Cathy's book kind of ones that he did, yeah, it's his last oh, yeah. full – standalone novel it's the one with the ghosts and set in texas with the family do you remember well it's, it's, very, it's a good book yeah. very good book right uh, it, it, it one of the great lines in contemporary fantasy that i can recall one of the great lines in contemporary regional literature which is of west texas is known for i think three natural resources dust oil and relatives 
Um, and which was, I mean, it was just a brilliantly realized, very short novel. Here's the other thing I think is interesting. When you start asking people about fantasies, I think most people immediately get an image in their mind of a bloated trilogy of thick volumes. Sean yeah. Stewart's Perfect Circle is a, is a modestly sized novel. It's, it's a couple hundred well, words of stuff, yeah. That, that's it. It's in and out very quickly. Right. Um, and that kind of thing is very hard to bring off. Um, one of the other novels, one of the other novels that showed up uh, in um, the 21st century list from the Locust Pole was uh, well, there were two by Neil Gaiman. There was American Gods, mm-hmm. which I think is fairly shaggy and has a great novel inside it. Yeah, the Graveyard Book, which is more focused. Yep. and is um, I think. Let me see. I, th- I think it's fair to say that when we when we see the new Neil Gaiman novel, it will be more like a perfect circle, less like American Gods. Does that make sense? I think I think that does make perfect sense to me. Actually, having read uh, The Ocean at the End of the Lane, as you have, um, and actually I have this feeling. I just may be on a bit of a high, and I don't know if Neil ever listens, but uh, I think four of his novels made the Locust 21st Century poll. Uh, American Gods topped the poll, but Coraline. Um, the Graveyard Book, and A Nancy Boys all also made the list. I actually mm. kind of rate the new one above those. I do too. I think it's um, very, very good indeed. Well, one of the issues, I think, with any fantasy writer, when you're, with any ambitious fantasy writer, is focus. Yeah. Um, so there's a tendency to want to, especially if you're profligate with invention, to just want to throw a lot of stuff into it. I thought a Nancy Boys, for example, is a more focused yeah. novel than American Gods. Um, Coraline and, 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 and the Graveyard Book are certainly focused, but the Graveyard Book is episodic. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a novel, I, 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 I will go out on a limb and say that the most focused and balanced and consistently tonally perfect novel that Neil has written is probably the one that's coming out, The Ocean at the End of the Lane. Yeah, I think it is. I mean, not to talk it up, and I, I hope we're actually going to have a proper conversation about that book towards the end of the month. But, um... Well, I think Neil might come and have a chat with us about it with a little bit of luck. Well, we can chat. Yeah, we can talk. I'm also, I also kind of want to throw in another book, which it, it's a little earlier than these books, but sits in the same group for me, and that would be Liz Hand's Waking the Moon, which has always been my favorite of her novels. Waking the Moon is something that... Uh, it's interesting. I've talked to friends who have taught that. Uh, it seems to be... Of all her novels, the one that has become a cult book. There are, there's a huge following right, yeah. for that. It was one of the first novels to use epic fantasy tropes in a kind of feminist context or a kind of gender-aware context. And I think that's part of it. Because the, Do you think that belongs think it, on our theoretical list? I think it does. I think it does for a couple of reasons. One is that there are novels... And it's interesting. Here's an odd combination. Mm-hmm. Something that... Um, Waking the Moon has in common with The Wizard Knight, in that they are both novels, the first half of which establishes a fairly recognizable traditional fantasy context, mythological context. The second half of which deconstructs the first half. Yep. Uh, Yep. And the the thing that strikes me about Waking the Moon is that the second half of it is just stunningly surprising after you've read the first half. And I think the same thing with The Wizard of Night, the volume called The Night, yep. rewrites the first, what you thought you'd read in the first half. Yeah, yeah. Where do you... I, 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 yeah. Go, uh, no, what you're going to say? Go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say... Okay, you go yeah, ahead. No, you go ahead. We're, we're going to talk over each other now because there's a little blurb in the, in the sound. So you, you go ahead, you go ahead. I was simply saying, in terms of James's question, um, we have to recognize our own biases, and my bias has to do with literary gamesmanship. And yeah, I think there's a lot of that in the Elizabeth Hand and Gene Wolfe novels we've talked about. I think there's a lot of that in Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. Um, and, and it's something I'm attracted to. It's a bias. Yeah. <coughs> I, I think that's a, a fair call. Um, and I, I probably share some of it. Let me look at the kind of list because I could see someone writing a list the, of the best in contemporary fantasy. It would be totally different to this. But I, I think mm-hmm. one of the things is, and I was just thinking about it just for a second, that maybe the reason that I don't think about um, epic fantasy as being part of contemporary fantasy is because maybe contemporary fantasy is less to do with when it was published and more to do with when it was set, you know, with that contemporary setting. Um, 
you know and so there's less of that because almost all epic fantasy feels like it's set in some pseudo europe or somewhere like that right and it always seems to be set pre-modern technology and all that kind of thing so it has a similar feel to it i mean that's a gross generalization but you know you know what i mean whereas it goes it goes back to what what used to be called urban fantasy and i remember decades ago now reading a novel like Megan Lindholm's Wizard of the Pigeons and thinking, this is a completely different way of looking at fantasy. How do you write um, that today? I think, I think it holds up really well. I've not read it in years. Uh, it impressed me enormously at the time. Um, and I, I, I'd be curious. I, it's one of those books where I wonder if I went back and looked at it, would it, would it seem to have to be as innovative as it did? Yeah, because the there's, there's a couple of books that came out all around that sort of time, uh, and a real flush of contemporary fantasy, if you like. I mean, we've name-checked Mythigo Wood, which came out quite, well, not not long before, really, um, Wizard of Pigeons. But uh, R.A. McAvoy came out uh, with Tea with the Black Dragon, a very slim little contemporary fantasy novel, which made a huge impact at the time. Um, I reread that long ago, as a matter of fact, and the interesting thing is it still works well Except now it reads a historical novel about computer technology. Ah, okay. Because it's full of, in addition to the Chinese mythology in it, there's cutting-edge 1982 computer technology, which seems utterly quaint today. Yeah, well, of course there is, yes. Uh, and the other one, of course, was from that time would have been Bridge of Birds by Barry Huard. Mm-hmm. Oh, and, and, and lest I forget, what was the, oh, gosh, the Ken Grimwood book, Replay, which was fantastic. That was great, yeah. Which was basically and, m- much like... Um, that Bill Murray movie, um, Groundhog Day, but far more sophisticated. And another one which I know, I th- I'm pretty sure I like better than you do, which is from that era or a little bit earlier, is a little big, is John Crowley. I find, I mean, okay, it's a classic. There's no doubt. Mm. One of the great works of modern uh, fantasy and everything else, and Crowley stands as a giant in the field. And I just can't read the book. I've never been able to read it. I don't have an honest opinion because I've never got more than three chapters into it. It's. I found it hypnotic. I don't. I've read it twice, not recently, um, and I. I will confess that I did not read all four volumes of the of the later quartet that uh, um, that dealt with um, the secret history of the world. But, uh, but but I find Crowley another writer who makes the contemporary world magical. I think he does that very effectively in, in Little Big, in the same way that we're talking about. Um, Megan Lindholm doing the same we're talking about. Well, even, even Mythago Wood is essentially a contemporary tale. Yeah, it is. So, and, and, and at the beginning, also, I think uh, when Charles Blint was writing the earliest uh, of his novels, Moonheart and that sort of thing, he was very much part of that movement of contemporizing fantasy, of finding, finding fantasy in contemporary urban settings rather than in Victorian London or, uh, you know, Renaissance, well, well, he was always, I mean, well, okay, his were all set, well, almost all, not all, almost all set in a uh, fictional North American city called uh, Newford, but Newford. which was not far from being reminiscent of sort of a t- Toronto or somewhere like that, I imagine, or Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always felt that they you know, he peaked with a book called Memory and Dream, and mm. then, uh, which, which I remember very, very fondly, I thought it was a major book. Um, and then it sort of began to, uh, it's, it really struck, he, he began to just become, become somewhat repetitive in what he was doing. Well, you know, this is, this is something that, uh, um, you and I may see it as repetitive and readers may see it as reliable. Mm-hmm. In other words, he created a kind of fantasy world in it was not just the fantasy that was part of it, it was the kind of. Uh, hard scrabble street life, the homeless teens, and this sort of thing, which he could do very well, and he had sort of nailed that that culture, that yep. city, the idea of, of of homelessness and alienation and so forth, and and that did it very well. I think you're right. I think he tended to do it over and over again, and I think that's what readers wanted. Um, and yeah, I, it's, I, I, it's not a criticism, but I mean, I, I, would I write Memory and Dream as one of the great contemporary fantasies? I don't think I would. Honestly, though, I, I think it's a good book. Yeah, uh, I would say the same thing about, uh, well, the first one, interesting piece of trivia, since we're now in the final stages of trying to judge uh, the Crawford Award yeah. for the CFA. The first Crawford Award went to Moonheart, and we were all impressed. I was No, I, I love that book. 
And I got very fond memories of Yarrow as well. Yarrow as well. And, and, and at the time that those books came out, it seemed like something new in fantasy. It seemed like somebody was doing something. Yes. It was not a well, well, but that was that whole Terry Windling school of writers who were being published by Ace. I mean, I think we have to be, you know, like, pin it directly to her. And that included, I mean, DeLint, Kushner, Brust, um, a whole group of them. There's that well, whole... There I'm, I'm listening Terry... to John Ford and some others. Oh, yeah, John Ford. And, and the whole Terry Windling uh, fairy tale series, mm-hmm. um, which included essentially modern reimaginings of a lot of classic tales... I think uh, produced some, not only produced some very good works, produced things like Daniel and Rose, but also uh, more or less influenced a lot of writers to think about contemporary applications of fantasy. Yeah. Uh, going back to the folkloristic material, uh, and I think, I think Winley was very conscious of this at the time, and probably still is, that going back to the original source material of, of uh, fantasy and folklore meant that you could look at things besides Tolkien as a model, or besides Mervyn Peake, or besides um, uh, Edison, and so forth and so on. So, so I think partly because of that A-series, Terry, uh, Terry Willing could turn out to be the character of fantasy when you, when you look at that period. How would you... He had, re- a lot, yeah. he had a lot of influential writers reimagining fantasy in, in a new way. How would you rate a book from that series, uh, Briar Rose by Jane Yolen, as a contemporary fantasy? Or would you? That, as a matter of fact, I, I, th- I, think, I think Briar Rose by Jane Yolen, which interestingly enough is not a fantasy novel yeah. at all. Uh, nothing fantastic happens in it. It simply follows the form of that. Uh, is a very effective novel. And I can say that on the basis of having taught it to my classes mm-hmm. uh, several times at this point. <coughs> there is one right also, yeah. Keep going, yeah. Briar Rose is one of those, as I recall, was uh, a nominee for the World Fantasy Award in a year in which I believe Peter Straub won the award for mm-hmm. another novel that wasn't quite a fantasy. Yeah. Uh, I believe he won for Coco that year. Okay. Um, but this leads us into a totally different conversation. Subject, yeah. which, which, are, which are fantasy novels that aren't really fantasy novels. We've talked about that before. Well, before we, we step over to that, there is a contemporary fantasy writer, a major award winner we've not really touched on, and I wonder if a particular work of his would belong in a, a list or whether it's something else slightly, and that would be China Mievo. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think China Mievo is somebody who we don't think of as a fantasy writer because of his self, self-proclaimed project of writing novels in every genre. So he's clearly written science fiction. But I think that when people think of China in, in, in fantasy terms, they tend to think of the Basilog novel. Sure. And that is certainly one of the great urban fantasy environments since Lankmar. Yep. And clearly it was influenced by Lankmar, which is another great fantasy writer we haven't mentioned, even though he's not contemporary. He's a writer. Yeah, of course. Um, which Lank- which Basilog novel would you think stands as the best? Of the four, I think it was a three, three or four, three. Uh, I have to be honest, I didn't finish the Iron Council. It would be either the Scar or Dead of Street Station. I'm going to say the Scar because that's my favorite of his books. Okay. Only because I think it's. I just love that book. But okay, so you, I've been well, cheating. The the, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Street Station is because there's a set when you're writing a series of novels set in a in a, in a common setting. Mm-hmm. There's a way in which you can never quite recapture the shock of that setting. The first time you see Bob oh. in Street Station, it's just stunning. Would you count just quickly Chris Priest's The Prestige? Oh! That's... Okay, you know, here's, here's another interesting question. Yeah. Do we count magic novels in terms of modern fantasy? I don't know. But it just there really... Was, it just popped into my mind. I suddenly thought... I mean, uh, I guess it's in my mind lately that you know, we can overlook British writers, whatever else, at times. And yes, Graham Joyce is on the list and whatever else, but still. Mm-hmm. And um, Susan Clark, Susanna Clark and whoever else. But um, I remember being knocked out by that book. I mean, The, the Prestige is a fantastic novel. Or, the, no, or what about The Separation, even? Which of those? I don't know. Well, that raises the question of whether you consider alternate history novels to be fantasy or science fiction, I yeah. suppose. Uh, I like the Islanders, which was only last year. Um, Chris Priest is one of the one of the great modern fantastic writers. I think one of the 
things that may be limiting his uh, popularity at least in the states is that he's not really you can't really nail him down yeah. um, into his genre. I think you're right. Separation, I thought, was, was was one of the brilliant novels, one of the brilliant pages on World War II, if you will. Yeah. Uh, and the same thing through the Prestige, that was one of the great novels about magic. But that's just, in my mind, seems to be a different uh, genre from what we think of as high fantasy. Okay. Now, I'm going to I'm going to spring something on you, Gary. You, you, I didn't say I was going to do this, but I've been cheating in the background a little because that's what I do, right? Uh-huh. And I'm going to put, suggest that we put on our on the website when we post uh, this episode a list of our recommended um, uh, contemporary fantasy novels. So I've been uh-huh. writing down the ones we've been talking about. And I want to give me a yes/no on which ones will go onto the actual website to mention it. Okay, I'm going to start at the top and just say yes, no. Don't even think about it too much. Uh, Mythico Wood. Yes. Drowning Girl. Yes. Last Call. Yes. Tagana. Uh, um, I'm not sure that's the one I would choose. What would you choose? It would be Isabel, maybe. I think uh, if you if you want to away from the historical context and into the pure use of fantasy in a narrative, I would go with Isabel. Okay. Facts of Life? Um, or are you going to go with Limits of Enchantment just to be difficult? I, I would probably go with the Limits of Enchantment. Oh, I love the Facts of Life, but all right, I'll go with that. Okay. But the three are of a piece. I mean, the... the, the I know. The, those. the Wizard Knight. Yes. Golden Compass? Yes. Jonathan Strange? Yes. Perfect Circle? Yeah. I would not I would not have thought of that if you had mentioned it. But Waking it, the Moon? New, uh, uh, yes. Wizard of Pigeons? I'd have to look at it again. My memory would, put, would have me put it there. So let's say yes. Tea with Black Dragon? Or is maybe no. No, okay, good. The Scar? Well, I'll go along with the Scar. It's fine. And we'll, and The Prestige by Chris Priest? Yes. Okay, so that gives us a potted guide to contemporary fantasy novels that um, people might find interesting and rewarding that say something about the field, which we've picked off the top of our heads without due consideration. And just looking really quickly, it looks like two of those show up on the Locus yep. popular poll. Now, I'm going to admit to our own prejudices because we've only managed three, four, four books by women out of 15, Gary. Do we have 15 on the list? Something like that. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. Four out of 13. And no, we're not going to throw just... And so, so that, that makes me feel like we're overlooking stuff, and we've overlooked some quite recent stuff because we don't have the Nedia, don't have Nedia Korafor on there, and some other, other, a few other people who I would have thought we might, um, you know, um, we, we might have considered including. So we, we mentioned very briefly the Gwen's Lavinia, which I think is actually your best novel in years. Um, and but it's not a contemporary right. fantasy, is it? Oh, oh you mean contemporary fantasy? Yeah, yeah. Now, Lavinia is a fantasy novel. Um, yeah. If you accept the idea. If we're talking about contemporary, yeah, um, I, I would I would probably add Who Fears Death to the list. Okay. It was a fantasy. Um, I would. We've got one novel by Lewis Hand, which is a fairly early novel of her. Yes, it is. Uh, so I, one of the things that's been coming up in discussions on the is radiant days, radiant days. Which yeah, I but are we going to are we going to let anybody have two 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 not books on this list, Gary? Really? All right. All right. He goes no. Oh. <laughs> and then you see, this is that YA thing and the whole contemporary issue because there's a couple of Francis Harding's books which could go on a list like this. But True, now, now we're doing that thing. We're doing that thing. We're going back and we're filling in. I think we should live with our list. Ask our listeners to go onto the onto um, either jonathanstrand.com.au/wp or to go to jonathanstrand.podbean.com and comment and tell us where we're wrong and tell us the books we overlooked that really belong on a contemporary fantasy list. Uh, I think that's reasonably fair. With a little caveat saying that we're just making this up as we go along and we have not thought about it until we started recording this. 
podcast? No, oh, absolutely. I think any, anybody who's listened to the first 129 episodes, or any, in fact, any 10 minutes of the previous 129 episodes, would have a pretty good idea that we pulled this stuff out, out up the top of our heads. I mean, otherwise, how could we overlook Margot Lanigan? Good or, point. Uh, and not list tender morsels? Well, yeah, here's one of the questions I was going to say the Brides of Rulock Island. Yeah. When somebody asks you to list classic works or great works or recommended works, doesn't your mind almost automatically go back to five or six years and not back five or six months? Yes. Well, I mean, I guess there's that feeling that, that, that the decisions aren't um, – they're, they're still too fresh with something that's only come out in the last you know, in this last year. We're still trying to work out, get, get some sort of feel for it in context. And there's always that feeling. And I know when we would do all-time lists in the past, you'd sit there and go, well, you want to give, give yourself at least ten years or something. Because, right. because then you'd have that notion that enough time had passed, you could weigh things up. Uh, and then um, consider, uh, and, and that's what, what you know. And there are books which. Well, one of the things, yeah. Uh, you mentioned, for example, Margaret Lanigan. Would you, if, you're, if, you're, if you're, let's assume hypothetically she's on the list, and we're talking about novels, would you choose Tender Morsels over The Brides of Rock Island? No, I don't think I would. So I'm going to put The Brides of Rock Island on on it anyway. So there. And I'm okay, going to put then. this all in alphabetical because there's no uh, ranking. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think there we will close our list, Gary. Just just because otherwise we could go on and we could second guess ourselves. And then we could start going back and look at old favorites of mine that could fall in, like um, Brittle Innings by Michael Bishop, which I think is brilliant, mm -hmm. or Glimpses by Lewis Shiner, which is the great overlooked rock and roll novel of, of science fiction fantasy. Um, we could look back at some of the actually really quite terrific standalone um, Terry Pratchett novels that you could consider in contemporary fantasy or related to contemporary fantasy. Um, we could look at Paul Park's Princess of Romania series, you know, which is was quite remarkable work, as I seem to recall. Um, so, I mean, I think I, one of, and, and we, we've overlooked the entire realm of natural fiction. We've overlooked Stephen King. We have, and yeah. We absolutely Arthur. have. So, so, let's draw a line. We have a Nominal, semi-meaningless list, which is intended for James Bradley and his his partner, but which uh -huh. anybody else is free to, to look at, and which I have to say, irrespective of what else isn't on the list, I'm very happy with what's on the list, and happy to recommend and support it. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that happens, and I mentioned this when I was um, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago on the podcast that when the locusts we were putting on the locust list, and there were, and other people would come up with titles which I simply overlooked. Yeah, and felt utterly abashed that I had not mentioned it. Uh, this is the way memory works. Oh. Although it is striking that for both you and I, that the novel of the past year that jumped out as being stunningly original, or maybe unexpected, for the writer or whatever, was *The Drowning Girl*. It's because, well, I, okay, I think there's a couple of reasons for that. Probably because maybe we hadn't paid adequate attention to Kiernan in the the years running up to it. Because uh, Jonathan McElmont of this parish has quite rightly pointed out that there are some similarities to The Red Tree in uh, The Drowning Girl, even though I think The Drowning Girl is a much superior book. Uh, and so you can see that uh, Kiernan has worked in this territory uh, before. Yeah. And so, you know, but this one really does stand out, you know, just as, although it's no surprise, just as uh, Mike Harrison's uh, empty uh, space does as well. Mm, I agree. So, yeah. That's recommendation time done. Yay! Okay. Well, we've made some recommendations. We, we, yes, and we've, we've, we've got a good long way through a podcast. We were going to touch, well, you were talking about touching on the all-time pole again, the old locus all-time pole chestnut. Well, you had made the point, we were talking about it very briefly, mm. um, the podcast, that, that Heinlein seems to have fallen, not out of favor, at least fallen lower on the list than he would have 10 or 20 years ago. Yeah. Yes, so well, I, well, I noticed that in the novel poll. Basically, <sighs> he's beginning, I mean, this is, okay, to me, the real value of the locust polls, not the old time, but just the locust polls generally, is that you can see reputation drift through it. I mean, the, the Locust readership, I guess, tends to be a fairly core science fiction readership. Uh, yeah. you know, and what's more, even when you when you spread it out to those who aren't actually subscribers but vote on online, I think they're, they're still kind of there. And 
you can see the awareness of things drifting through, right? Yeah, yeah, you know, so, so, so it's like the awareness of Bill Gibson and Bruce Sterling and cyberpunk in the 80s drifts through the pole when you look down 10, 20 spots. Now, what you begin to see if you compare the poles, now Locus has done all-time poles, not exactly regularly, but from time to time. I've done them like 75, 77, uh, I think in the 80s, 87 maybe, uh, in, and 99, and then 2005, and now, now, right? And you'll see Heinlein's drifting down. So where in 75, 77, 87, you wouldn't have dreamt of seeing an all-time science fiction novel that didn't have a Heinlein novel or two in the top ten. And certainly if you go back to uh, the first all-time poll that was done, there are two Heinlein novels, and they're always the same ones, by the way, Stranger in a Strange Land and The Moon is Harsh Mistress, in the 75 all-time poll, and in the top 10 in the 77 all-time poll, and in the top 10 in the 87 all-time poll. Uh, and then, again, I think if you go to the 99 poll, you'll see that, again, it's, it's uh, I'm pretty sure, I feel confident, I have to just pull it up, uh, that, it, that it shows up. Now, if you drift then back to... Um, if, if you drift back to the, the 2012 poll, no novels in the top 10. Uh-huh. You know, I think that at least for the moment, his reputation is on the wane. And, you know, that's what happens. You know, it's interesting. Just as you see Tiptree's reputation drifting up, mm-hmm. uh, and I haven't gone looking, but I wouldn't be surprised to see Russ drifting up in the poll somewhat, and, you know, uh, Zelazny drifting down, whereas Once Upon a Time he'd been right at the top. Uh, and uh, there's always, like, just reflex votes like I think the nine billion names of God is always a reflex vote these days I'm not sure it's the greatest short story of all time the, the, the only on the, on the local short fiction poll I was looking at earlier um, first of all, there are really very few votes to deal with so we're not talking about thousands of people no only one story out of all, all the categories short short story novel novella 20th century 21st century that's six categories the only story to earn more than 100 votes was Flowers for Algernon yeah, and I think one of the reasons for that is that almost everybody knows the story. I mean, it's a story even if you didn't read science fiction until you were in your twenties, you probably encountered it in high school. But I think there's another thing to it. I think that that is a story which sort of still works for both old-fashioned science fiction readers and new-fashioned science yeah, fiction. Yeah, yeah. It's a very humanistic story. It's a story which covers the same territory that, let's say, Daryl Gregory does these days with neurology. Um, it could get. It's a very sentimental story. It's a heartbreaking story, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and it's also very, very familiar. I don't know if that many people voted for it because they actually compared it to other stories, or because they had very, very fond memories of it. Yeah, well, m- well, most of this, this is all done from memory. But it's interesting that in you know just a quick comparison as well. You were saying earlier in conversation about the poll that uh, Ellison seemed to have his reputation on the on the rise again. But I'm yeah. going to query that because '99 was the the short fiction poll. That's that's pretty much most of what they they, they queried. They asked for all time writer, all time collection, all time anthology, uh, and all time short story. Right now, Ellison right. was the number one all time short fiction writer in '99. Dangerous Visions was the all time anthology. Um, mm-hmm. Death Bird Stories came in at number six in all time collection, uh, with others following below. By the way, um, Boy and His Dog was number four in novella. Uh, where does he come, if, if at all? He's, he's in just outside the top ten in novelette. And Jeff Dears 5 is number one in short story. Jeff Dears 5 comes in at 14 or 15 in the current poll. No, 18. Well, 18 is. So, you know. It's true, but when... Let me, let me, let me, okay, let me look here. Uh, the, the, the current poll, I was thinking, we've talked a little bit before about how um, we wonder who reads Ellison... Um, in the way they used to, and, yeah. and when you read short stories in the current poll, number three and number four are repent Harlequin and they have no mouth. Yeah, I think what's happened is that the stories like um, Jeff Dears Five, which yeah. were very, very popular and immediately in people's mind, they faded. But the 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 fairly un- the fairly generally acknowledged classics, those are probably the two best known Ellison stories in the world, are uh, repent Harlequin and they have no mouth. They're still back. They're number three and number four. They're after yeah. the nine billion names of God and the ones who walk away from Romelis. The nine billion names of God, I have to say, is a dumb story. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's one of those stories, and Clark did this more than once, where he, he writes a snappy ending. He's got a, he's, he's got a kind of send-off uh, 
slingshot, uh, wisecrack ending that completely undercuts everything Clark believed in. And it, it, as a writer, he had this odd capacity to write novels that had these mystical overtones or stories that had these mystical overtones that he himself did not buy for a minute. That's why he wrote this disclaimer yeah. at the beginning of Childhood Zen saying the author doesn't agree with the opinions in this novel. Yeah. The Nine Names of God is a joke. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Really story. <laughs> it has a punchline, for heaven's sake. It, yes, it does, I know. I, I wouldn't rate it in the top 10 or 20 short stories of uh, of all time. But it's very emotional, and that's what, what gets you through, isn't it? I guess so. <laughs> I do have one comment about the poll to make. And that is, I would really love to see other organizations, other groups, other somebodies hold um, their own poll to, to compare. Because uh, I think that the Locus readers are terrific, and I'm uh, very happy that they've, you know, they've done this. But I would really, really like to see a different demographic vote on the same thing. Because I have no doubt. I mean, like Ballard hasn't fe featured very highly on this sort of thing, and yeah. uh, Holdstock as a short fiction writer hasn't featured uh, highly, and a whole bunch of other people who are really terrific, British and European and Australian short story writers and wherever else have not featured on this list. So I think it would be a terrific thing to to see them represented. I agree, uh, and I'd be very curious to see that as well. And I don't know how who could do that or how they could do it, but. Um Oh, Interzone or um, SFX or one of those sort of places. Maybe maybe one of the, you know, the British Science Fiction or Science Fiction or Fantasy Society or yeah, you know, those kind of places could do it, and it would be fantastic. I'd love to see someone like Tor.com do it, uh, so that we could get you know their sort of demographic. Because even though the audience might get tired of being polled all the time after a bit, it would be interesting to see three or four or five different points of view put together so they could come together because this, this this is one particular group of people and it wouldn't shock me to find that a number of the people who voted in the 2012 poll voted in previous polls it's probably true uh and, and, and there there are some uh, interesting things i would like to see for example you mentioned um you mentioned the tip tree is, is probably rising that's true but if you look at all the short fiction polls in the locus yeah and if you eliminate Le Guin, Tiptree, and Russ, yeah, um, and possibly Willis, you've got virtually no women showing it at all. Yeah. And I wonder if that's because these stories are not as familiar or, 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 or whatever, but the fact is that there are a lot of terrific short stories out there by yeah. everybody from, from Judith Merrill to Margaret St. Clair that don't seem to be visible because they're not reprinted enough, they're not in anthologized. Well, it's also, I might be overlooking something that they did, but I'd love to see, see something like the Tip Tree people do an all-time poll. That would be very interesting. Which would be a fascinating thing to see them do. I'd love that. You know, and I know they do honor lists and long lists and do all sorts of great things, but I would love to see that. I think it would be very, very interesting. So, you know, hopefully somebody out there will, will maybe take us up on this and we'll, we'll get to see other points of view represented beyond simply the valued but single voice that is the, the, the Locust poll. Mm -hmm. I agree. I, I, I don't mean to devalue this no, no. poll at all. And I think, I think the fact that people the, the people like Tiptree are rising in this poll compared to what they would have been 20 years ago is significant, but it is only one set of readers. And as, as we both mentioned, when you get down below the first 10, uh, the, the, the top 10, you're, you're talking about votes in the teens, really. I know, I know. I'd, I'd like to see more. I mean, that said, I, I would also like to sort of I think it's fair to take our hats off because there's a lot of work that Mark Kelly puts in on these polls and I'd like to acknowledge that and I think that he and Liza Tromby are seeing this run did a good thing because I mean the, the point of these to my way of thinking isn't to come up with an answer it's to uh, create a conversation absolutely and call it call attention to stories that you might not have thought about or might yeah. not have read in a long time yes authors that you ought to be reading I, I, I agree this is a valuable kind of Exercise, but it shouldn't be done once every ten years and received as a definitive answer to the question of what the great short stories are. I would not, if you were to ask me to put together the top ten short stories or novellas, it probably wouldn't look like this. Yeah, 
I, I would start <coughs> off by resisting having to compile it at all, frankly. But um, yeah. Well, my, my second point is it would probably never get done because I would wrestle with myself for six months and not come up with something. Speaking of never having got it done, Gary, there's so much work I haven't done lately. It's ridiculous. I mean, for various personal reasons, but all kinds of things, including, and I didn't think I was going to do it this year, um, but I kind of agreed that I'll have another go at trying, which is my actual recommended reading essay for Locus, which I guess by the next episode of this podcast, you'll know whether I actually managed to find a way to write in the next three or four days. It'll be fascinating because I, as you know, did mine and found it surprising. I found it really, really difficult to get started and not that difficult to finish. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, this weekend has disappeared in the haze of things, and so I don't know whether I'll get to it, but I, but I hope so. But anyway, on that note, we're over our hour. We have, we have filled our quota of waffle, uh, though I probably shouldn't keep talking about that given we've got a 1,000 people listening potentially, unless they just download it and let it sit on their, in their queues of podcasts and then quietly delete it so they won't hurt our feelings. I encourage everybody to download the podcast and then immediately delete it. I think that's our ideal audience. Really? Why? No, I was just saying that. Because, because I know I say dumb things on this, and our listeners are extraordinarily generous and only occasionally pointing that out. <laughs> oh, I know. I know. But anyway, look. I think we should finish up. I'd like to thank James Bradley for his question. I'd like to thank Locus for having run the poll. I mean, obviously we're part of Locus, but this wasn't we we played minimal or, or no part in it. So um, thank you to them. And I hope that come next weekend we will fire up Skype again and record a hundred and thirty first episode of this ongoing saga that is the Coot Street Podcast. Absolutely, and we have more guests to come for people who are hoping for that. Yes. And All right. On that cheery note, until next week, farewell. We'll talk to you next week. Okay, bye.